We're going to continue our theme, which has been evangelism for, for the last several weeks at least, and prayer for evangelism as we've taken this 40 days of prayer and preparing to ask the Lord to bless us. And just as a reminder, why did we put out the Advent candle? Uh, just as a reminder, a visual reminder to you that our hope is that by Christmas Eve, when we light that Christ candle, that we will have new people that God has brought and redeemed into his family. So as we continue that theme, we're going to focus this morning on a passage that tells us something about unbelievers and how the gospel is veiled to them, because the God of this world, Satan, has blinded their minds. Uh, So yet again, we're going to find ourselves in a passage that one could spend a lot of time on, like many passages. This one you could easily spend weeks on because it connects to so many other places in the Bible. These uh, mainly six verses that we're going to look at this morning uh, connect to at least dozens of other places in the Bible in both Testaments, so you could enjoy a lengthy study Uh, Just on this short passage, but this morning we're not going to quite do that. It already feels an hour later because of daylight savings time. Your stomachs are probably already rumbling for lunch. But uh, we want to focus on trying to understand a little better about why some people hear the gospel but never receive it or believe it. So let's first look at the text and then we'll ask some questions about this together. The text is 2 Corinthians 4, the first six verses, which say, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. For even, and even if our gospel is veiled, It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. May it bless us and encourage us as we seek to advance your kingdom. And we ask for you to help us by your empowerment to understand this text and to live it out in Jesus' name. Amen. So you, as I was reading, may have identified some questions you have about the passage. It's always good when you're reading the Bible, even on your own, to think to yourself sometimes, what what that means, and maybe do a little investigating. So in the context of us talking about evangelism, here's a few questions. I came up with more than this, but here's a few that I came up with. First of all, what disgraceful, underhanded ways was Paul renouncing there? And then, does Satan alone blind people? And will we promote ourselves or Christ Jesus? So let's dive into this verse by verse. Again, that first verse going back says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. In any endeavor that we spend some amount of time and energy in and we don't seem to be gaining any ground, we are in danger of losing heart. 
Charles Spurgeon said to the students at his seminary, Our work, when earnestly undertaken, lays us open to attacks in the direction of depression. Who can bear the weight of souls without sometimes sinking to the dust? Passionate longings after man's conversion, if not fully satisfied, and when are they, consume the soul with anxiety and disappointment. To see the hopeful turn aside, waxing more bold in sin, are not these sights enough to crush us to the earth? The kingdom comes not as we would, the reverend name is not as hollowed as we desire, and for this we must weep. How can we be otherwise than sorrowful while men believe not our report and the divine arm is not revealed? All mental work tends to weary and to depress, for much study is a weariness of the flesh. But ours is more than mental work. It is heart work, the labor of our inmost soul. Such soul travail as that of a faithful minister will bring on occasion seasons of exhaustion when heart and flesh will fail. Spurgeon, by the way, was speaking from a very real, raw place inside of himself. You see, Spurgeon, you've heard me quote him numbers of times, would probably be diagnosed today with major depression. Despite all his successes in ministry, he felt a heavy burden and often had long bouts of depression. Now, some would say, well, that's somehow a flaw in his faith. Well, perhaps, but then you would have to assign that flaw to many of God's men, many from the passages of Scripture, many more from church history. Many men have shared this deep struggle of longing for more people to respond to the call of God through their ministry. Now, if you're reading the McShane reading plan, which some of you do along with me, you're in Jeremiah right now. And this poor guy, he's giving truth to everyone he could and no one listens. He went, he wept. They called him the weeping prophet. As people, he pleaded and he plunged and they just went into deception. They went from false prophets. Ultimately, all the people were exiled. So Spurgeon and Jeremiah and many others, including Paul, have felt this discouragement of watching people hear the word of God and fail to respond, ultimately to the judgment of those who did not respond. But Paul said, we must not lose heart. You will feel the pain of watching a lost one stay lost. You will weep weep for many who continue headlong down the path to perdition. And you will be discouraged at many points, but in spite of this, you must not lose heart. In other words, do not lose enthusiasm or be discouraged or be afraid. Do not grow weary. Don't give up. We who are called to the great commission of Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, must not give up. We must press on. In the next verse, then, Paul says, But we have renounced, a disgrace, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So here's one of the questions I mentioned earlier. What disgraceful, underhanded ways are we renouncing and refusing? Well, Paul here does not elaborate on any specifics about what's disgraceful, disgraceful and underhanding or cunning. However, we can consider what motives may get someone to a place where they're doing those things. Why are they preaching? Is it to be famous, to get rich, 
Those motivations will often bring the preacher to exploit people, to bring in manipulative practices, to get people to follow them. Or perhaps knowing that people are so short-sighted, they will promise them riches soon to be had if they would give or follow the minister. Perhaps they would get on TV and tell people to sow seed money and they'll get rich if they simply give. The promise for them that following Jesus is all about, uh, you know, really just riches and health, happiness in this life. Your best life now can happen if you're going to hell later. So these false teachers draw people in by the millions. They manipulate people by appealing to their lustful natures, their desires for riches and temporary things. And believe me, these false teachers know exactly how to pull the strings of the lustful, for they themselves are princes among the greedy. And that's why Kenneth Copeland's worth almost a billion dollars. And Benny Hinn can live in luxury like a sultan. As whistleblowing employees have reported, they pull the mail every day, filled with small checks from poor widows and asking people, people that are asking for help in prayer, they take the check out and throw away the notes. Why? Because they are presenting Christ to people in disgraceful, underhanded ways. And Paul says we renounce that. They're cunning, and Paul says we refuse to do that. And finally, in verse 2, they tamper with God's word. Many have twisted Scripture. The very first conversation recorded by Satan, or, or between Satan and anyone else in Scripture, is when he twisted God's word in the garden. He twisted the Scriptures in his attempt to get Jesus to sin. He twists the scriptures still, and he has many of his servants who twist it as well. And Paul had said this earlier in his letter in chapter 2, verse 17. He said, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Okay, so we see what Paul says he does not do, and we should not do. But what does he do as an alternative? But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So the next couple of verses, I hope you're remembering these now. I've quoted these several times in the past month or so. I want you to remember these two verses. 2 Corinthians 5, 11, and 12. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. All right, let's recap. So far, we've been reminded not to lose heart, not to get discouraged, and so on. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to temper with, tamper with God's word as if we were sons of Satan. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And next, verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, Paul says, it's veiled to those who are perishing. This is a very interesting point Paul is making. Let's consider for a moment why he might have said this. Why did he say that? Well, Paul, like any evangelist or preacher, certainly had experienced many people rejecting the gospel he was preaching. Paul then might have at times questioned his own presentation. Or others might have said to him, how come you didn't have many people come to belief after that last sermon? Come on, Paul. 
But Paul is saying here something that Scripture teaches very clearly in many places, and that is that no one comes to Christ without having had a supernatural work done in them that removes the blinders of truth. And who knew more about those blinders than Paul? Remember the conversion story and what that involved? It was a time of temporary blindness that most certainly is an illustration that we can use about spiritual blindness. So when Paul preached and pleaded with people, if they did not understand the gospel, it wasn't because Paul did a poor job, but because people had a veil over their spiritual eyes. And those who had a veil are those who are still perishing. In other words, that veil that keeps them from clearly perceiving the gospel is part of their condition, their fallen, sad state of separation from God because of sin and their spiritual blindness so that they, they have not yet been able to perceive or receive the truth of the gospel. So they continue stumbling along, not having any light by which to find their way to redemption. Why are they blind? Paul continues, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And who is the God of this world? Satan. Some people have trouble with the idea that Satan has so much power on the earth. Yet Jesus said he's the ruler of the world, at least for now. John 12, 31, Jesus' words here, now is the judgment of the world. Now will this ruler of the world, he's referring to Satan, be cast out. Satan has much power in this world. No more than God allows, but he does have power. He's involved in the blinding of people to the truth of the gospel. But is Satan alone responsible for people being blind to the gospel? No. People are also quite capable of deceiving themselves. Jeremiah 17.9, we just talked about this in D6 this morning. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Isaiah said in 44.20, he feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Obadiah 3. Who, who had the pool that I would read from Obadiah this morning? Nobody. <laughs> the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? You know, I think that's the first time I've ever used Obadiah in a sermon. Satan is certainly involved in deception. He's the father of lies. No truth is in him. He's busy at work deceiving the world, but humans are easily deceived. When we sin, we're ready partners because we believe the lie. So Satan deceives and people deceive themselves. This blindness keeps people from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, Of course, many people, particularly Jews, did not accept the gospel. To them, it was veiled. But Paul would not change it to make it more palatable, as his opponents had done. You notice what he's saying there? He didn't say, well, if it'll make you help you believe, let me add on some health and prosperity and wealth. No, he did not do that. The gospel was rejected by people who were unable and unwilling to accept it. They disbelieved and were abetted in their unbelief by Satan, the god of this age, who, though defeated by Christ, continues to hold his hold over the present world. His blinding of people's minds makes it impossible for them to see the light of the gospel. 
The gospel, then, is not obscure. In fact, it points to Christ, who, as the image of God, revealed God to the Father by his words and actions. End quote. Now we move on to verse 5, that, and Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. So this answers one of our questions, right? Do we promote ourselves or the gospel? Paul insists we never point to ourselves except to point out how wicked we were and how in need of grace we were. Paul's view of himself is chief of sinners, right? He only talks about himself in order to magnify the grace of God. If God can save the likes of me, what a gracious and loving and merciful and benevolent and majestic God he is. And so it is that Paul finds himself in many of his writings just pouring out his soul and spirit to God in those wonderful doxologies we find throughout his letters. He just can't help himself. I always, from a literature standpoint, you read and he's saying something and all of a sudden he just bursts into this like little uh, explosion of a doxology. And I can just feel how, how much Paul believed what he was saying because of those interjections he makes. The glory is to God. Why does Paul, what does Paul brag about then when, when he does brag? He brags about his weakness, his frailty, his fear and trembling attitude in presenting the gospel. No glory for me, says Paul, all glory to Christ. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to receive the light of the knowledge of the glory of the, in the face of Jesus Christ. God said, let there be light. John 1, 9 says the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Who brings light into darkness? Who removes veils that keep the spiritually blind from seeing the truth? Only God can do this work. Let's quickly go back through this passage because it's very important, and then we'll see why this matters to us in our push to be better evangelists and in our prayers for the lost. So I'm going to reread it one more time really quickly, this passage, and we're going to conclude, hopefully. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face 
of Jesus Christ. So we must not get discouraged. Every person in the history of the gospel and the church, everyone who has set out to do the work of evangelism, has had times of discouragement and rejection. Some have paid the ultimate price being murdered for sharing their faith. Yet we are not to be discouraged. We renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. Have you ever fallen prey to some really great advertising? You, you, you found, oh, i got to have that product, whatever it is. It's so great, and then you buy it, and it's a piece of junk. Or you never use it. <laughs> it's the way of the world to use deceit to sell something. But we do not stoop to the low level of lying to people about what the gospel is. The truth is, we must tell people not that we will, they will have a life of bliss in this life if they follow Jesus, but rather, this life might actually get very difficult. They may lose friends. Their family may count them as a traitor. People have been shunned and even killed by family for following Jesus. You may decide to follow Jesus and lose your job. You may stand for righteousness and be arrested at a school board meeting for calling board members to a moral account. You may find yourself having property seized and driven out of your community for following Christ. These are all true things that may happen, and the Bible tells us very clearly Jesus himself said that in this world you will have trouble, not might, will. Yet false teachers will appeal to the masses, telling them that Christ is the way to riches and happiness in this present age. Instead of telling them that following Christ has a cost, But in the end, it will be the best thing because in your eternal life, you will be with the Father and the Son in heaven in perfect bliss and peace and contentment and they say your best life now. Well, to paraphrase the great John MacArthur, if this is your best life now, you must not be saved. Now, we will not be like those false teachers. We refuse to practice cunning and tamper with God's word. We commend ourselves to people in the sight of God. He's our redeemer and our justifier. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. Let's look for a moment about what Paul had said earlier in the same letter about the veil in 2 Corinthians 3. He said, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone, he's talking about the the commandments, the Ten Commandments, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was once what was being taught brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. 
Now, I'm running out of time, or I already ran out of time, so I can't do a whole other sermon on this right now, but the veil Paul is talking about in, verse, in chapter 4 is like the veil he's talking about in chapter 3. Moses came from speaking to God, and his face was so full of the glory of God that the people couldn't even look at him. And so his face would, be, would have like this shine, and he put a veil on. Paul is saying this veil is still on the hearts of many. They, they could look at the tablets, but not the face of Moses, which was full of the glory of God. So when the people of Israel hear the laws of Moses read, a veil lies over their hearts. However, Paul is showing us that there's hope. There's hope for the Jews who can have their hearts, who have their hearts veiled. There's hope for the rest of us as well. The veil can be taken away, but there is only one way for this to happen. Only through Christ is it taken away. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When we think of all the people we've wept over, realizing that they've heard the gospel, they've not responded, and we think how this is an impossible task to reach them with the gospel. When we realize they have a veil over their hearts that is keeping them from receiving the gospel, when we consider that they are being blinded by Satan, they are blinded by their own hearts and the deceit that they have within them, what hope can we have that our efforts to share the gospel with them can have any effect at all? I have some answers for you. First, Pray fervently and without ceasing for those that God would lift that veil from their eyes. Because unless he lifts it, it cannot be lifted. The one who would heal the physically blind is the only one who could heal the spiritually blind. So pray, pray, pray for the lost. Pray and act. Speak. Share. So pray And then trust, trust God that the gospel really does have the power he says it has. Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I'm going to close by reading the passage I preached The first time I ever stood at this pulpit, two and a half years ago when I was a candidate to be your pastor, I marveled then and I marvel now at this passage. If you need your faith increased a little, I want you to reflect on this passage. Remember the two things we need to do, pray and trust. Pray for the lost and trust in the gospel. In Ephesians chapter three, Paul prays for the saints that they would have the strength to believe. And when I preached this passage, I marveled that Paul was saying that the love of Christ is so powerful, so amazing, so life-altering, so marvelous, that it requires great strength just to comprehend it. Pray and trust. So Paul writes this, and I close with this. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning, and we thank you for the time that we've had together to celebrate what you're doing in our lives and that we hope that you'll be continuing to do through us, and we trust you will, Lord, in faith. We ask, Lord, when we light that candle this Christmas Eve, Lord, would you, would you have given us new souls to come into your kingdom that would join us? Lord, I pray for Lahaim congregation as well that the same would happen there. May they see increase in abundance there as people come into your kingdom, Lord. And we pray for a blessing on the offering as well that we know that we're giving an opportunity to, to put some money to good use to help those who are suffering in Israel. Lord, bless us, Lord, with all of your blessings that you've promised us in your word. And may your word continue to go forth through this church and through our mouths. In Jesus' name, amen.